The image for this series is a woman celebrating the festival of holy to remind us that blessing doesn't always look like what we expect. In fact, as we study the final beatitude, we will see even more parallels. I've never participated in the festival of holy, but I've been in an egg toss. In an egg toss, something's being thrown at me that I both do and do not want. In order to catch the egg and maybe win the contest, when I attempt to catch the egg, I have to retreat from it with my hands or even my whole body. I can't aggressively catch an egg like I might catch a baseball. The final blessing from Matthew 5 is kind of like that. It's something that can go very wrong, but winning is great. Being blessed is living in the assurance that I'm with God and God is with me, even though my present circumstances might not look like it. If I'm blessed, I'm living in the kingdom of heaven. That hope is especially important to remember as we look at this final blessing from Matthew 5, 1 through 12. Today we're looking at the eighth person Jesus says is blessed. In Matthew 5, 10 through 12, Jesus teaches this. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Today's sermon may be the most un-American sermon that I think I've ever preached. When I say un-American, I don't mean anti-American. I'm not here to preach against the United States. However, the culture Jesus is preaching to and in and the actions that he tells his followers to take goes against our cultural norms of the United States. So some of what I say may sound un-American. When we read and study any passage of the Bible where there is a command, we have to figure out if the command is exclusively written to a particular people, time, and place where we then have to find a modern application, such as women covering their heads in worship, or is the command universal above time, culture, and geography, such as loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I'm going to leave it to you who are listening to wrestle with how much of Jesus' culture you need to bring into how you live in the United States as a follower of Jesus. However, I will also give us a universal principle, and we will examine the assumptions of both the culture at the time of Jesus and our culture. Our subject today is persecution, and here is our universal principle. God's people are to bring God's righteousness into the world, but God's people do not hope in the world. Jesus begins teaching on past persecution. Today I've used a different translation than I normally preach from because I wanted to read from a translation that got the verb tenses correct. In verse 10, Jesus is speaking about the past. In the other Beatitudes, Jesus has been saying, when you do this or do this action or are this type of person, you will receive this corresponding blessing. In verse 10, he begins by talking about people who have already received a blessing. 
the blessing they receive is the same as we read about when we talked about those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We literally translated that phrase as, for they will rule the universe. The blessing is a promise to rule and reign with Christ. Now, the reason these people received the blessing to rule and reign with Christ is because they were persecuted for righteousness. This is not some general persecution. We know from both history and current events that people are persecuted for all types of reasons. We persecuted American Indians in the United States so that we could take the land, manifest destiny. The Uyghurs are currently being persecuted in China because they are Muslim. The people Jesus is talking about were persecuted because they brought God's righteousness to the world through words and actions. And Jesus tells us in verse 12, these people who were persecuted for righteousness were the prophets. Hebrews 11, 32-38 describes the persecution of the prophets. Where it says, And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. These people listed are Israelites, but they are not being persecuted because they're Jews. Most of the time, these people are bringing the message of righteousness to their own people who are not being righteous. So their own people persecute them with evil words and actions, including fire, whippings, death by the sword, imprisonment, and various forms of execution, some of which are torture. Hebrews 11 also tells us that in their lifetimes on earth, these persecuted prophets didn't receive the blessing. Verse 39 says, All these having gained approval through their faith did not receive what was promised. And verses uh, 13 through 16 says, All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them, having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking about that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And of course, we read how they were looking forward to the resurrection. These prophets lived out our universal principle. They brought God's righteousness into the world. 
but the prophets did not hope in the world. They looked for a blessing from God that comes later, the resurrection of the dead. Now back to Matthew 5. Jesus moves from the past to the present and future uh, when he talks about persecution that may happen. The Apostle Paul told Timothy, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He said that in 2 Timothy 3.16. And Jesus is also saying that his followers should expect persecution. The persecution that people should expect is threefold. Two aspects are verbal or written. Insults and slander. Insulting is to express hate toward, and slander is to tell lies about. This is how it worked in the early church. Uh, People said, I hate Christians because they're cannibals, misunderstanding communion. John Wesley said in his day, the world will always say, away with such fellows from the earth. They are made to reprove our thoughts. They are grievous for us to even behold. Their lives are not much like other men's. Their ways are, are of another fashion. And today, someone might say, Christians hate people and are intolerant. When in truth, Christians are commanded to love people like Jesus did. And just like Jesus, we are, at least should be, only intolerant of righteous actions. I think the only people Jesus was intolerant of were unrepentant hypocrites. So lies and slander. And the third aspect is persecution. This is a move from expressing hate Uh, verbally to physically attacking. Persecution literally means to cause another person to run away because to stay means beating, imprisonment, or death. Like the prophets, this is not a generic persecution. In order to receive the blessing, the persecution has to come about because of following Jesus. If I'm hated, persecuted, or lied about because I'm following Jesus, then I am blessed. However, if I'm persecuted in some way because I deserve it, that doesn't count for this blessing. That's not persecution. That's consequences. 1 Peter 2.20 put it this way. For what credit is there if you sin and are punished and you endure it? But when you do what is good and suffer and endure it, this brings favor with God. If someone tells a lie about me because they hate me for any other reason than Jesus or to gain an advantage over me, that also doesn't count for this blessing. If I'm being denied a constitutional right, that doesn't count for this blessing. If I'm being persecuted by a racist because I'm black, even though God doesn't like that, that still doesn't count for this blessing. If I'm persecuted by a nationalist because, say, I was an immigrant, even though God doesn't approve of that, that persecution doesn't count for this blessing. If I, but if I am insulted, persecuted, or lied about by anyone because I'm standing for righteousness as Jesus would, or living righteously as Jesus would, then I am blessed. Under these guidelines that I've laid out, Martin Luther King Jr. wouldn't be blessed because the KKK merely didn't like him, but he would be blessed because he acted like Jesus as he took a stand for the oppressed. As he worked to bring a righteous change to his world, as a Christian, his hope was not in this world. This is why he could say, darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. And he also said, we must accept finite disappointment, but never lose infinite 
hope. The United States Civil Rights Movement is one of those places where we have a drastic contrast between the culture of Jesus' time and our time. During the Civil Rights Movement, it was time to take a stand for righteousness. And taking a stand for what I taking a stand for things like that is very American. There are certain times in Scripture also where people do that. Peter says to the Sanhedrin, we must obey God rather than men and continues to preach Jesus risen from the dead. Daniel would only pray to God, defying a royal command. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego wouldn't bow to an idol. Remember, Daniel was thrown into the lion's den and his three friends were thrown into a furnace. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego all survived, but those were miracles, an exception. Peter eventually was martyred and crucified upside down. When Jesus says persecuted, he means put into a state of running away, not standing my ground. Think about this. Elijah stands against the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18, and then he flees Jezebel in chapter 19. In Matthew 24, Jesus says, when one sees the abomination of desolation, run. Don't even go back for your coat or anything in your house. And those who don't have babies or pregnancies will be able to run away faster. After the Last Supper, Jesus tells his disciples they can bring two swords to the garden, but he doesn't let them fight with them. Instead, Jesus stands his ground while assuring the disciples can all flee. Jesus, standing his ground, is arrested, beaten, and killed. In Acts chapter 7, Saul begins persecuting the church, arresting and killing Christians, and many Christians flee Jerusalem. Some people stay, but... People like James, the brother of Jesus, are killed because they stayed. The writer of Hebrews also speaks of resisting sin after recounting the persecution of the prophets. Hebrews 12, 2-4 says, Keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, so that you won't grow weary and give up. In struggling against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So we are to resist sin, but the shedding of blood the writer is talking about is me willing to have my blood shed for the sake of righteousness, not me shedding the blood of someone else. The cost of resisting sin may be as high as my life. In some places in the world, we've seen this recently. In Africa and China in particular, churches are being attacked and destroyed. Christians are being killed. If we are being persecuted in the United States, it's not yet to the point of shedding blood. Jesus also says in Matthew 5, 39 through 41 and verse 44, But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other cheek to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus is not telling us to give in to evil, but he is giving us two options in the face of evil. One, run away from persecution 
or two, stay and take the abuse. He never says fight the power. It is from Jesus that we get the idea of a Christian pacifist. The question that each of us has to ask as we figure out our conviction on this is this. Did Jesus advance this pacifism as a universal principle or for his place in time because nobody in his audience lived in a democracy with constitutional rights? In particular application for today, I have to ask myself, does it make a difference when the civil right I want to stand for is my right to worship God? You know, I can't answer that for anyone but myself. But because followers of Jesus have been trying to figure this out ever since the time of Jesus. This movement that I'm going to talk about seems to have died out or at least died down. But for a time in the United States, there was a group of Christians that believed in what's called Christian Reconstructionism. In short, they believed Christians would usher in the kingdom of God by Christians first taking political and moral leadership in the government. Some Judeans and Galileans in Jesus' time believed that God would help them wage war against the Romans to establish God's kingdom. But as we've seen over the last few weeks, Jesus assigns the kingdom to the meek, those who show mercy, those who make peace, and those who are persecuted. However, even if Jesus would have us use democracy to bring God's righteousness into the world, we still do not hope in the world democratic or not. As with some of the other Beatitudes, Jesus is proposing a blessing in an action that seems to be unfavorable. What purpose would Jesus have in promoting being persecuted because of him? So let's explore the product of persecution. First, persecution can result in the spreading of the good news of salvation in Jesus. Jesus allowed his disciples to flee the Garden of Gethsemane, and they became witnesses to his resurrection. Christians fled Jerusalem because of Saul, and the story of salvation spreads to Samaria, Ethiopia, and all the cities from Ashdod to Caesarea. You know, one-third of the Mayflower pilgrims were Christians fleeing the Church of England. Second, persecution can result in the transformation of the persecutors and society. Saul was persecuting Christians uh, and began to hunt them down. And he's met on the road by Jesus as he heads to Damascus. Emperor Nero began persecuting Christians in 64 AD. Persecution continued off and on, locally and nationally, for two centuries. And Christians endured it while trying to be good citizens. Then one day Constantine became a Christian and Rome became a Christian nation. So that's why we pray for those who persecute us. That's why the Wesleyan Church can say we are about transforming lives, churches, and communities through the hope and holiness of Jesus Christ. And third, about persecution, Jesus says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. See, I want the gospel message to spread. I want to see society transformed. I hope for those things. But my hope is not in either of those things. My hope is in Christ, who says my reward is in heaven. Heaven, in this context, is the kingdom of God, which in its final form will be fully expressed on the earth. If my work doesn't righteously transform lives and communities, I know in the end, Christ's work will. 
in our present climate, the church in the United States, corporately and individually, we need to ask ourselves, are we truly being insulted, persecuted, and lied about because of Jesus? Or have we just gotten so accustomed to having so many rights that we feel persecuted when our rights are curbed? Here's my opinion. In certain states, I'm thinking particularly of California and New York, it seems to me that there is some persecution of the church. As a government official, if I make a rule that says nobody can meet in groups larger than 10 and call out church worship in particular, and yet encourage massive groups of people to gather together in the streets to protest, even our courts have said this week that that's discriminatory. However, even though Christians seem to be the face of discrimination here, we also have to remember that those rules on meeting size affect all religious organizations that gather together for worship. So maybe it's not Christian persecution, but religious persecution generally. So does a congregation stay and fight or flee the persecution? American Christian culture says stay and fight for my rights and for my faith. But what if we apply Jesus' words of fleeing to our current situation? Acts 2 through 7 tells us that the early church was known for performing miracles. Uh, They took care of the poor both within and outside of the church. They had favor with all the people. Then Saul begins to persecute the Christians and many Christians flee. Now who's left in Jerusalem that can heal the crippled? Who's left to feed the poor widows? Who will take unwanted children? Who will be there to take care of the sick when there's a plague? Those are all things that Christians were known to do in Roman cities. Bringing it to today, what if in California a majority of Christians simply left, moved away? I'm sure there are some people who would cheer, glad to get rid of those intolerant Christians. But even non-Christians like to get married in a church with a pastor officiating. Where will they go? The church is also where people get free counseling. What about funeral and bereavement services? Who runs the local food shelf? Maybe Christians. Who runs some of the senior living facilities? Well, that would be the Presbyterian and Benedictine services. Those would close down. Catholic health care and Methodist hospitals, closed. Catholic charities, which include adoption services, closed. St. Vincent de Paul's and the Salvation Army, gone. Christian private schools and colleges, closed. What happens when a majority of Christian students and employees leave the state? Now, I realize that in some of these things I mentioned, especially health care, those are largely just businesses that may or may not have retained their Christian roots. But I think you get my point. If a majority of Christians left and nobody noticed, then perhaps the church wasn't doing the work of Christ there anyway. But what if it takes an absence of Christians for people to see the value of Christ. My high school social study teacher used to say this, you must have the courage of your convictions and you must be willing to face the consequences of your actions. Now that's not from the Bible, but it is a true statement. Do I fight persecution or do I flee it? There are consequences and opportunities either way. It's a right conviction to say, Jesus died for me, and I will die for him. 
it is also a right conviction to say, Jesus died for me, and I will do everything I can to live for him. So I ask myself, how will I best bring God's righteousness into the world, and where am I putting my hope, in the world or in Christ? Let's pray. Psalm 133 says, The Lord has appointed the blessing, eternal life. God, you are both eternal and the source of life. We thank you for offering those gifts to us. We repent of the times we have put our hopes in this temporary life and commit to looking to you so that we will have the courage to stand against sin and the wisdom to know when to flee it so that your people may be the light of your righteousness to our families, friends, neighbors, cultures, and world until Jesus returns to make all things right. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. As you reflect on this message, try and think of one thing that resonated with you, one thing that challenged you, one thing you want to learn more about, and one thing you will do based on what you've heard. I'd like to end today with a prayer for persecuted Christians. We pray that God will give them the right words. We pray they will know God's peace and the sufficiency of God's grace. We pray that in their hardship, they will find their source of power in God and in any fellowship they may have with each other. We pray for God's presence and protection according to his will. We pray their witness will move the hearts of those who seek to harm them. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.